Grab your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to the book of James chapter 2, James chapter 2. Let's keep working through this uh, letter together. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to consider verses 14 through 26. So James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 26. This is the Word of God. What good is it? my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead." Well, it is the Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, If you were not aware of that, uh, you might want to scuttle out and buy a turkey immediately after the service. Uh, And so there's lots of things, presumably, that we all have to be thankful for. So I'm going to suggest that we just take a few moments individually to bow before the Lord in prayer. Uh, You can lay out before Him what's on your heart, and then after a few moments, I'll lead us together in prayer. Father, already in, in this epistle, we have been reminded that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And so we uh, give you the thanks that is your due. We recognize that we, we don't thank you as often or as sincerely as you deserve for the goodness that you shower into our lives, for the blessings that you give us. And yet we pray that you will make us uh, truly grateful, give us spirits of gratitude, help us to 
be thankful, to be full of thanks, but also then to give thanks, to be full of thanksgiving to you. Lord, we would pray that this morning you would, by your Spirit, open your word to us, help us to understand it, help us also to apply it well, not just in terms of understanding how the text may work out, but also help us to, to do something, uh, to, to actually uh, respond by your word and by your spirit to, in a tangible way, be a blessing to someone else. Uh, bless us so that we are able to bless others and so we can also bless your name. Lord, uh, by your spirit now, <clears throat> we ask that you'll take control of our minds and our hearts Help guide us into your thoughts, give us responsive and open hearts to your truth, and also give us the moral fortitude to respond in ways that please you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Thanksgiving, of course, is a bit of a Johnny-come-lately holiday in terms of global perspective. Uh, it, it's, it's a good one. You know, it's a good one for us in North American context, but not nearly as impressive theologically as the massive celebration that we all observed just two Octobers ago when it was 2017, October 31st, not Halloween, but what was that tremendous event? It was Reformation Day. And what did you dress up as for that, for that celebration, sir? Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Uh, bold choice. Uh, and so it was the 500th anniversary, two years ago, October 31st, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And one of the ways you can tell... Now, listen, there, there's a lot of mixed things going on with the Reformers, I, I, I acknowledge. Um, but one of the ways you can tell how much our society has absolutely no historical consciousness attached to religion at all is that um, on that day, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, Google had n- not a single thing to say about it. You, you know how Google always has like special day little search engine highlights? They didn't mention the Reformation. You know, that's impossible. This is, I mean, forget the religious implications. You, you, you can be an atheist and still recognize that moment. Granted, the nailing of the 95 Thesis to the Church at Wittenberg was not the Reformation. I mean, there's a lot of things going on that put that into context. Um, but you can at least acknowledge this is a watershed moment in the history of Western society, regardless of whether or not you think there even is a God. Now, that was a massive event historically. It's just, just not, even, not even a whisper of that uh, anywhere. So, in keeping with the upcoming 502nd anniversary of the Reformation and the fact that we're to be thankful today, what could make you more thankful than some of the theology of the Reformation? So, quick review. Five little bumper stickers. The five solas of the Reformation. What were they? Sola gratia. What does that mean? By grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. It's only the grace of God that provides salvation. Very good, sir. That's, uh, what did you dress up as? <laughs> I, I, I won't ask. I won't ask. Uh, what was another one? 
Sorry, pardon? Ah, yes, the Word alone, sola scriptura. Okay, the Bible alone. Okay, and so we, the Bible alone is our authority for issues of faith and practice, not just church traditions. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Uh, another one. Sola fide, faith alone. We're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. Right? Uh, very good. We're, we're good at Reformation stuff. Yes. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is our Lord and Savior. And one more, sort of the overarching one. Three words, not two. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Okay. Now, that's fantastic. You guys did very, very well. This little front row section, a bunch of keeners. Uh, very, very good. Uh, and so, uh, God alone, or God's grace alone, you know, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. It's fantastic. We are saved by grace and justified through faith alone. So, the Reformers, when they're saying sola fide, what they're saying is that you are not justified by what you do. You are not justified by your works. You are made righteous by holding on to Christ through faith. That is, you are saved by faith alone. You are considered righteous not by your works, not by what you do, but by faith alone. That was the Reformer's idea. And then you read James 2.24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And, and, and you wonder if, if Luther and Calvin and, and the rest just, just stopped after the Pauline epistles. Did, did you keep going? You know, did, did you read the general epistles? Did you read Peter? Did you read James? And, and so what do we do with this? You know, we have these slogans. We have Paul talking about justification by faith. Uh, we have Luther and the Reformers you know, giving a soul a fide, that we are justified by faith alone. And then James here very clearly seems to say the opposite. You are not justified by faith alone. You are not considered righteous by faith alone. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do. That's just another way of saying works. A person is considered righteous by their works and not by faith alone. So how do you handle that? Well, we'll take a run at it. There are a few verses to put in context first, but just sort of put that away in the back of your mind. James starts this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Save them? Now, note just, just from the beginning, the, this textual detail here, that he does not say if someone has faith but no works. He says, if someone claims to have faith but has no works or has no deeds. In other words, the claim and the reality may not be the same thing. It is very easy to claim that you have faith. It's extraordinarily easy to say that you're trusting God. So the claim is there, The question is, is the reality there? Is the faith itself there as well? And how would you know? Well, if you claim to have faith, or what good can it possibly be if you claim to have faith, but there's no evidence of it at all? There are no works that are compatible with that faith. There's nothing that you do which actually demonstrates the reality of the thing you're claiming to have. Can such faith save them? 
James asks. In other words, if you're claiming you have faith, but it doesn't usher into any activity, can that type of faith save you? Or, as I think he develops through the text, is that a misnomer? In other words, if you claim to have faith, but there's nothing that goes along with it, is that faith at all? That's sort of what he's asking. So the first thing you'd want, to, you'd want to think about in terms of James here and in terms of the Pauline epistles and the Reformers is, are they identifying faith in precisely the same way? That is, here James seems to be starting out by setting up the idea that you can claim to have faith and that type of faith, that is the claimed faith without any activity behind it, that type of faith can't possibly save you as he'll work through the text, just because that type of faith isn't even alive. That type of faith is dead. That's not what Paul is considering when he's talking about faith. Now, can such faith save them? We know the answer to the rhetorical question is no. But then look at the example he gives. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Note how shockingly practical the application of this point is. He does not say something like, If you have faith, then obviously you will be in church on a Sunday morning. Or, if you have faith, obviously you will tithe. He says, look, if you have faith, or if you claim to have faith, and and there's a practical need that you can meet. Now, now this actually, just to the side, this raises all kinds of, of questions that we would have to wrestle with today that James's audience wouldn't have had to wrestle with in quite the same capacity. And, and, and by that I mean this. Today, we have a global awareness of extreme poverty and starvation and a capacity to literally feed and clothe people on the other side of the world that he couldn't have imagined. And so while for us in our, in our sort of coddled North American context, we may have legitimate needs to help meet in our own neighborhood, but there are also needs that we are aware of the other side of the world that we can also help meet, uh, where where there are brothers and sisters. And and so that's worth working through too, is how expansive is this when sort of the world comes to your door and you actually have the means of reaching out across the globe to help someone How does this sort of text apply to us today in our own context? It may be a little bit more far-reaching than a lot of us want to acknowledge. Nonetheless, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And basically what you do, even though, and and note, he says, you know, that you do nothing about their physical needs, but you just sort of give them this verbal blessing. I'm awfully sorry that that you don't have any food. Well, 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 Peace and be well fed. Well, what did that do for their stomach? Not a single thing. 
And the idea here, of course, is that, that you have food to spare. You have extra clothes. You can actually do something. And you choose not to. In what meaningful sense do you care for that person if you can help them and you choose not to? You would say the fact that you chose not to do anything is a denial of love. That is, it's pretty clear you don't love your neighbor as yourself. If you can actually help this person who's destitute, and these are very basic things. This is not, oh my goodness, I, you know, I, I just can't afford the latest iPhone, and so you need to shell out a couple hundred bucks to help them buy it. This is clothes and food. And so if you don't care about their basic needs, you don't care about them. You can say you love your neighbor as yourself all day long, but if you're neglecting them, when you can help them with their basic needs, you don't, you don't love them, you don't care about them. Our behavior, our actions, demonstrates our heart. If you have faith, that faith will demonstrate itself in what you do. If you care about someone and can help them, you will help them. If you don't help them, it's a sign that you don't care about them. If you don't have any works, it's a sign that you don't have any faith. That his behavior just quite naturally shows what's actually going on inside of us. And so faith without works, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's useless. And so James will then say, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, you can't see my faith. My faith is invisible trust in God. It's sort of in that sense, faith is like an abstraction. It's like an, an abstract noun of some kind. You know, it, it's real, uh, but you, 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 it, it's sort of not open to your senses. So how do you make faith open to your senses? Well, you, you, can, you can't sort of cut someone open and just sort of find like the, the molecules that are aligned in trust of God. But what you can do is you can see how someone acts. Show me your faith without deeds. Well, you can't. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And the person is going to say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. But who are you to say that I don't have faith? I believe there's a God. I believe in God. That's what faith is, isn't it? Believing in God. There's accepting that he's there. James, James, again, one of the things he's doing in this text is, is he's presenting, then deconstructing false definitions of faith. You believe in God, good, but that's not faith. In fact, the existence of God is, is just a fact. The, the demons believe there's a God. You, know, you could make that stronger. The demons don't believe there's a God, if you're going to have any kind of you know, epistemological disjunction between, uh, f- between uh, belief and knowledge, Satan knows perfectly well there's a God. He knows there's a God. He has talked with God. He's been in the presence of God. He knows God. And he hates him. And he wars against him. And there is no submission or repentance or humility or love. Satan does not have faith in God. Satan is not trusting God. 
but he knows there is one. And so James says, don't confuse theological belief or awareness with saving faith. And that's really tough for a lot of us. Because one of the easiest things to do is to confuse a living, vibrant relationship with God and the acceptance of particular doctrinal propositions in a statement of faith. A statement of faith, even ascribing to it and saying you agree with every one of those points, is not the same thing as a living trust in God. Now, one of the ways, one of the reasons this is so tricky is that you can't have a living trust in God and just run around believing anything you want about Him. So the statement of faith is important, depending on what you put in it. But it's not the same thing as actually having a vibrant relationship with God. Theological accuracy is not the same thing as trusting in Christ. And we can very easily confuse our system of how we think about God with God Himself. So, claiming you have faith without deeds, that just demonstrates there's, that reality isn't even there. There's no real faith in you. Confusing faith with acceptance of certain theological propositions or even knowledge is also not saving faith because that's what the demons have. So, what James does now, he says, all right, let me give you some biblical examples to help work this out. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? This, this was considered sort of the epitome of the exercise of Abraham's faith in Jewish interpretation. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So what he's going to do now is James is going to demonstrate using biblical examples that faith without deeds actually is of no value whatsoever. And he takes you back to the, the, the great fountainhead of faith, the father of the faithful, father of the Jewish race, the, the man renowned for his faith in God, Abraham. He's going to demonstrate that Abraham is actually justified or considered righteous in the sight of God by faith, that's what Genesis 15, 6 is about. Okay? It says, quote, uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is when Abraham is told that he is going to have the child, that he's, a, that he's going to be a blessing to the world and to all the nations, and that if he could count the number of stars in the sky, then he'd be able to count his own offspring. And Abraham knows that uh, he and his wife are not, are not able to have children. But he has this direct promise from God. Not a direct promise for everyone. This is a direct promise to him from God. And he goes out and, and what God has told him is impossible. It's impossible physically and biologically, but he has a direct verbal promise from God to him in his situation specifically. 
And he believes God. And as much as maybe all of us would like to think we would believe God too, what God had said wasn't possible. But Abraham went out and, and he looked up and under that night sky, he resolved to trust God. And the Lord credited that to him as righteousness. That is, the Lord, in, in God's accounting books, that went on the credit of righteousness side, that went in that column. And God looked at him and he said, that, that's righteousness. Not that the faith itself was righteousness, but it was a demonstration of his trust in the promises of God. And so God looks at Abraham and he says, Abraham, you know, in your heart, you have that attitude of trusting in me, which is necessary for salvation. Salvation comes through trusting in my provision and in my promises. And I see that you have faith in me. It is righteousness in my sight. Now, how do you know? How do you really know? that Abraham trusted God. Well, the text says so, so that gives you a clue. Uh, but besides that, in Abraham's life, before Genesis is written, for example, how do you know for sure? Abraham, Abraham actually really genuinely, deep down, wholeheartedly trusted God. How do you know that? Well, the child is going to be born bit of a mixed review with Hagar and Ishmael and all of that going on, but we'll just set that aside for a moment. Isaac is born. Isaac grows up to a young man. And, and Abraham, in a sense, doesn't need to walk by faith because he, he can see his boy. He's right there. God has fulfilled his promises. Through the world, this, 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 the world's going to be blessed through, through this child. This is, is the beginning of the line of Abraham's seed through whom all nations on earth will be blessed, all the stars, you can't count them, all of the rest. And then, then God comes to Abraham again and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Take him to the mountain of Moriah and sacrifice him there. And Abraham does. Gets up early, doesn't waste any time, gets ready, takes his son and some servants to the mountain, leaves the servants behind, ascends the mountain, and for all of us, the drama is entirely lost in knowing the outcome. But Abraham didn't know the outcome. And he brings Isaac up, and Isaac is bound and laid on the altar. And Abraham raises the knife 
And as Abraham raises the knife, he has no expectation whatsoever that the knife is not going to fall into the body of his son whom he loves. We're told later by the author of Hebrews that Abraham was working it out on that walk. He believes the promises of God. God has promised that through Isaac, through his seed, through this child, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And before Isaac has children, he's going to be put to death. And Abraham says, I I believe God's promise, but I also have to obey God's command. And and so, so how do I do this? How do I believe God's promise and how do I obey His command when His command is also contradictory to all kinds of other moral boundaries? God has commanded me to do something. God has put me in a situation which is ethically untenable. This is why Kierkegaard treats this section in terms of knights of faith. You need to take a sort of a leap to follow God even though the, 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 the every, everything else would say, don't kill your son, that's really bad to do. But the command of God overrides that. Somehow it has to work. But how? And Abraham says, well, God's not going to go back on His promise. And so I'm going to kill my son. And God's going to raise him from the dead. Even death itself cannot stop the promises and plan of God. And when he's about to follow through, the voice, the angel of the Lord calls out, stop. The Lord has provided a ram, substitutionary atonement. You want to know that Abraham really trusted God? It wasn't just standing out under a starry sky feeling impressed. It was believing that God could raise his son from the dead and being willing to sacrifice his son on the basis of God's command while not letting go of the promises of God. In other words, that act was an absolute demonstration, incontrovertibly, of the fact that Abraham trusted God with everything he was and had, including the thing that he loved the most. And he was willing to trust God that even if he sacrificed the thing he loved the most, God's promises and plan were better God's promises and plan would still find fulfillment in God's time and in God's way. His faith and his actions worked together. His faith motivated his actions, and his actions completed his faith. His actions demonstrated the reality of his relationship with God and just off to the side. And he was called God's friend. That's really an amazing thing. 
be considered a friend by God. And I, I hope you have some good friends in your life. I really do. When, when God looks at His people who are completing their faith by what they do, He looks at them as His friends. So, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. The greatest proof of all of Abraham's faith was his willingness to sacrifice the one person that he loved more than anyone else in all of the world. So, can you say you have real faith if you don't have any actions at all? And here James is clearly saying no. You don't have a real living faith if there are no works, if there are no actions that demonstrate uh, that you do. Also, however, we would want to say that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is also in context in terms of sort of public demonstration. That is, can you show me your faith apart from any evidence or works? Well, of course not. So, so, in order to be justified, in order to show people, in order to demonstrate that you are righteous or to demonstrate that you have faith, works and deeds are needed. But those works and deeds do not properly contribute to your salvation in terms of standing before God. That is, what you do does not somehow earn you merit and favor before God in a saving sense. When Paul is talking about justification by faith, what he means is the only way we can be saved before God is to be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way to secure the righteousness of Jesus Christ is not by works, it's not by earning it, it's by clinging to it in faith. That's how you receive the righteousness of Christ. But what Paul and James both agree on entirely is that Although you are only saved by faith, that saving faith, by its very nature, will generate works. That works necessarily are attached to saving faith. So that where you don't have works is because it can only be because you don't have faith. Faith absolutely by necessity generates works. There is always evidence for saving faith. And so if there aren't any works, if there's no evidence, there's no saving faith. It, it, it's, it's, it's simply a matter of sort of logical necessity. So we're saved. Our standing before God is secured by what Christ has done for us and by faith in, his, in, in the salvation that He has provided for us on our behalf. But where there is saving faith, there will always be works. And we will demonstrate our faith to people Certainly, by what we do. Second generation reformer slogan ran this way. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Meaning, salvation comes only by faith, but saving faith will never be just all by itself. There will always be works that surround it. No works, no faith. 
In the same way, another example, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So, it's not just Abram. It's not just Abraham. It's also Rahab. There's an awful lot that could be said you know, about Rahab and what's going on there in, in that particular text. Um, you know, some people want to take this as, as a justification for lying and all of the rest. You want to be really careful with that. Um, the idea, I think, globally and basically is Rahab, who knows very little about the moral, ethical universe of God, at least does know that God is real, that He is powerful, that He has brought His people out of Egypt. They've heard what happened in Egypt. And she knows that their deities, their gods, their army is not going to be able to stop the God of Israel. And so her trust, her faith, in a very basic way, is in the greatness of Israel's God. And then she, using whatever sort of moral structures and strictures she has at this time, she does the best she can in the sort of situation of warfare to hide the spies and send people off in the other direction. She literally risked her own life in that situation. And so she was willing to risk death because she had a greater trust in the power of God. So both of these contexts, both Abraham and Rahab, actually are life and death situations where, where you're risking an awful lot. This is not a small thing. You, you, you are risking life because of your faith in God. That type of commitment to God should be exemplified in all of our lives. Because Jesus actually said, listen, the only way to save your life is to lose it. Every Christian, by definition, is someone who has stood in a life and death situation and decided to trust God more than their own life, has decided to lose their life for God's sake, trusting Him to make it right somehow. Trusting Him to do it better. Faith without works is dead. Faith loses it. Someone who has faith is willing to lose their own life because of their wholehearted commitment and trust in God. So, back full circle. If you're willing to lose your life for God, James would say, can you really possibly pretend to be a Christian and have saving faith if you're not willing to share your food and clothes with those who have nothing? If, you're, if you say you're willing to die for God, Abraham, Rahab, but you won't, you won't clear out some cans in your pantry? You'll, you'll just turn a blind eye to those who have nothing in this world? 
You'll give just, just the, the remnants of the leftovers of your swollen bank account to some charitable organization. James says, faith is real. Faith transforms lives. And so people who have real faith, they shouldn't just be like those people who don't. And if the only difference behaviorally is that you'll sign a statement of faith, or you're here this morning instead of sleeping in or whatever else people do on Sunday mornings, James would say, make sure your faith's not dead. Because real faith will transform you. Why? Because faith is what holds on to Christ. And faith invites Christ into your life. And you, you, how would it be possible to have, to have Christ inside of you and to be just like everyone else? Like, like Christ is active and working, Right? And so Christ is going to make a difference. And if Christ is making a difference in you, then that will be demonstrable. That will enter, that will usher into changed living. So if a claim to faith hasn't made a bit of difference in how you're living, it's because it's not real faith. It just isn't. And such faith won't save you. It's not what Paul is talking about. It's not what the Reformers are talking about. The Reformers are not saying, it's not sort of sola pseudo fide. Right? It's not saying, oh, if you claim to have, if you have fake faith, that's fine too. No, faith is a defined reality. It trusts in God. It holds on to Him. And where you have that trust, you have transformation. Maybe slow. Oh, man. Sometimes it may seem like a couple steps forward and just as many steps back. But there will be a trajectory. There will be a growth. Faith will change you. So take that seriously. Take that seriously. No matter who you are, faith without works is dead. Can such, James, this is where he used air quotes, can such faith save you? No. No, it can't. But neither can your works. So don't get that confused either. The two errors, the two, the two pitfalls that we have in terms of evangelicalism is we, we, we bounce to a, a sort of a legalistic works righteousness. We bounce back into an antinomianism. There's an anti-law. We can do whatever we want. Neither one of those is biblical. You're not saved by what you do in terms of works, but you're also not saved to do whatever you want. You're saved to, to walk in the way of love by the Holy Spirit, knowing that your works are not saving you, but wanting to work and do something good in the world because Jesus has saved you in grace already. So that works are the grateful response to God rather than a pathway to try to curry and earn His favor. Where we understand salvation, where there is the Holy Spirit, there will be works. 
May God help us. Because for thanksgiving, it's easy for us to be thankful. But I think James would say, where there is real faith, you're making other people thankful too by what you do. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.